And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us now to preach. In Jesus' name. I know this is kind of hard to believe, but sometimes people say my messages are hard to understand. <laughs> and sometimes I worry that I just say the same thing over and over and over again. And I think I do, and I think I'm supposed to. Well, anyway, I, I, what I'm supposed to say, I think, is summed up in this little book that I read to you um, six years ago, and I think you can understand this. And so I'd like to read it again this morning, okay? It's titled, The Pirate Who Tried to Capture the Moon. Page one. I'll skip a few pages, but... There was once a fierce pirate who loved nothing. He lived alone on an island where he strode about in armor, waving a broadsword, and he watched for ships to capture. Through his glass, he spied the ship of flowers with its daffodil flag and its sails of Queen Anne's lace. And the pirate, he captured just about every ship that you could think of. Captured the ship of flowers, the ship of horses, the ship of, of birds. But each time he'd look up in the sky and see the moon sailing as it pleased. He'd shake his sword and he'd yell, Someday I'll capture you too. And the day finally came. The pirate knew that it was time to capture the moon. He climbed up his mast and waved his sword above his head, shouting, Moon, follow me! Moonlight shone on his armor, but the moon drifted free. So the pirate shot at the moon. The dark barrels of his cannon swiveled high. Boom, boom, boom! But the cannonballs fell straight back down and slid into the sea with hardly a splash. And still the moon sailed across the sky. The pirate paced back and forth in his rusty armor, back and forth, to and fro. He walked in circles day and night until he passed an old ship of books he had captured long ago. He searched its broken decks and shredded sails until he found a book that told all about the moon. And then the pirate laughed. He took that book and six horses and sailed for land. He harnessed the mares to his ship, and he ripped across the earth. He ripped over fields and streams, leaving a scar. Slowly, the pirate, who loved nothing, moved over the land in his ship, looking for everything that the moon loved. The moon loves to shine through curtains, said the book. It loves to float in pools of water. It likes to peek over small hills. The moon loves poetry. The pirate slashed curtains from farmhouses and draped from mansions. He cut curtains from stages and he loaded them all onto a ship. Into barrels he scooped frog ponds and reflecting pools and swimming holes. He chopped at small hills with a sword and shoveled them into his hold. He captured poets and everything else he knew the moon loved. He swiped candles from the tables of Italian restaurants. He grabbed sadly playing violins from under the chins of gypsies. He kidnapped lovers as they gazed at each other softly, walking hand in hand. He netted baying wolves and children who danced all by themselves in the middle of the night. And the pirate sailed that bursting ship back to his island, and he waited. Clouds moved across the sky. The wind blew the empty sea. And finally, the moon rose. We'll stop there for now. But I hope you realize that the pirate 
was a lunatic. <laughs> uh, Luna is the Latin word for, for moon, from whence we get the word lunatic. He was moonstruck, driven crazy by the glory of the moon. Psalm 89, verse 36, 37, refers to the throne of the seed of David as the moon, and it refers to the moon as the faithful witness in the sky. The moon faithfully reflects the light of the sun on the dark side of the earth. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. And then John sees Jesus with a face shining like the sun, with the light of the sun. He falls at his feet as though dead until Jesus touches him and says, fear not, and then Jesus dictates seven letters. Now, Revelation 4.1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, may what must take place after this. After this. After what? Well, after the letter to the seven churches which aren't actually to the seven churches, but the Angelos messengers in the, the seven churches. After this, it's important to note that in chapter 4, verse 1, we're first beginning to read what Jesus in chapter 1 said is actually addressed to the seven churches. Chapter 1, verse 11, John heard, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. But for the last two chapters, John has been dictating what he has heard, which isn't addressed to the seven churches, but to the angelos in the seven churches, which appear to be the seven spirits of God in the seven churches. And yet, the seven churches are supposed to overhear what Jesus is saying uh, to the angels about them, the seven churches. What he's saying to his spirit about them, the, his, his church. They overhear that they each face some real challenges. Real challenges and uh, well, an opportunity for some incredible rewards if they conquer. Some need to restore their first love. Remember Ephesus? Some need to be faithful unto death. Some must stand against false doctrine and idolatry. Some need to renounce porneia, which, remember, is buying and selling love. Some are dead and need to wake up. I don't have a six fingers. Some need to endure the synagogue of Satan, those that say they're Jews and they're not really Jews, according to Jesus. Some think they're, they're prospered and they need nothing, when actually they're trapped in hell and they need to open the door to, to Jesus. All of them need to conquer. And all of them have some real problems. And all of them must be incredibly self-conscious after this. And now let's have a little sympathy for John. Because John sees himself as their pastor. What's he supposed to do and say after this? After the revelation of all this need, you know, there's a huge variety of need in this room right now. Some of you are facing challenges that, honestly, I can barely even begin to understand. And if I was in your place, I think I'd be totally crushed. And I'm supposed to talk to you about God who constantly baffles me because he's holy? The word holy means different or, or separated. Um, uh, it means 
awesomely weird or weirdly awesome. Holy, holy, he's holy. What do I say after this? Well, the seven churches, they faced all sorts of problems, and they faced uh, one common problem. It's likely uh, reflected in references to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, remember, and, and Balaam and Jeze- the Jezebel woman. It manifests in their apathy and their immorality and their self-delusions. After the seduction of Jewish legalism, historians view this as the first great doctrinal enemy of, of the early church. I'm talking about Gnosticism. You heard that word, Gnosticism? Gnostic means literally one who knows. It refers to all sorts of of different groups, and and so it it isn't always a a helpful term, but it usually refers to this corrupt melding of Christian theology and the philosophy of, of Greece. But Greece is not the problem. The problem with Gnosticism is this underlying assumption that you're saved by Gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge. Eugene Peterson writes, the Gnostics gossiped about God. They claimed to know a lot about God. Gnostic means one who knows, but it was all about God. Gnostics did not pray. They did not worship. All seven churches existed in a sea of Gnosticism. And we modern Americans exist in a similar sort of sea, a sea of ideas that took our culture by storm in the 18th century. The Enlightenment was largely largely a, a, a rediscovery of Greek ideas. To the Greeks, a man's crown was his ability to use reason, to use reason in order to conquer all things. Listen closely. To use reason is not the same thing as being reasonable. Scripture says that Jesus is the reason, the logic, the logos, the the word. He must conquer us if we ever hope to be reasonable. Many would argue that the modern era began in 1636 when Rene Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Scripture testifies that I am is, therefore we think. But Descartes argued, I think, therefore I am. I think it means something like man is the measure of all things, including reason, which is unreasonable if you really stop to think about it. Man is the measure of all things, or as it was on my daughter's t-shirt when she was little, um, it's all about me. It's all about me. So I just glossed over 3,000 years of philosophy and history and put it on my daughter's t-shirt. But I think it's safe to say that the Gnostics and most modern people are pretty much just like the pirate who tried to capture the moon. If you want to know the moon, well, don't trust poets and lovers. If you want to know the moon, you must conquer the moon. You must send a man to the moon, capture a piece of the moon, bring it back to the earth, and put it in a box. To know a tree, you cut it down and count its rings. Uh, to know a frog, you, you conquer the frog, you kill the frog, you cut it into little tiny, tiny pieces and analyze the pieces. To know a woman, well, cutting her into pieces is illegal. But in some place, places, they, they, they can be purchased. That's called pornea. 
And now I really should point out that if Gnosticism is faith and knowledge, then it's far more than just ancient Greeks and modernists that, that are Gnostic. And it wasn't just the second great threat to the early church. It was also the first. It was the philosophy of the synagogue of Satan. I'm, I'm saying that all Pharisees, all legalists, all Pharisees are Gnostics. Gnostics. Gnostics have faith in knowledge that they take from the natural world, and Pharisees have faith in knowledge that they take from Scripture. John's Gospel, Jesus says this to the Jews, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and it's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Remember the pirate who tried to capture the moon? He found a, a book about the moon, and he learned everything that the moon liked, then he captured all those things in order to capture the moon. The Bible is a book about God. Maybe we read it to find out all the things that God likes, like you know, honoring the Sabbath, not using his name in, in vain, not murdering people, marriages that last. We, we, we learn everything God likes, and then we try to capture those things in order to capture God. In the Old Testament, God's chief complaint about the Jews was that they, they played the harlot. That's, that's porneia. They wanted to know about God so they could use God. But they didn't want to be known by God and so surrendered to God. They, they wanted an idol. You know, a small, containable God that you could like put in your cabinet that you could control. They wanted an idol, a, a, an inanimate God, but not the living God. Not the living, living. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and it's they that bear witness to me, yet refuse to come to me that you may have life. They wanted words about God, but they didn't want the, the living word that is God. And so when he stood in front of them, what did they do? They plotted to capture him, kill him, cut him into little tiny pieces of broken flesh and drops of blood. I'm just saying that the Pharisees were Gnostics. And the Gnostics are really Pharisees, and liberal New Agers, I think, are really just like most religious uh, conservatives and most Christian fundamentalists are really just like most secular scientists. I'm saying Gnosticism is the human condition. As if we thought we could make ourselves in the image of God by taking knowledge from some tree or something. So like those Jews and Greeks in the seven churches, we we modern people, this is my point, like those uh, Jews and Greeks, we, we modern people, we expect something after this. After all our problems have been pointed out, we expect some practical advice on how we can conquer our problems. And let's be honest, God is our chief problem, isn't he? I mean, when you really get down to it, God's our chief problem, so how do we conquer God? How do we comprehend God, understand God, and so use our knowledge of God to get from God what we, what we want? So after this, we expect someone to tell us what to do. And this is what's so very hard for us modern people. But after this, Revelation 4, verse 1, we're really not mentioned as such in the rest of the book. I mean, the seven churches as such 
aren't mentioned in the rest of the book. There's no do this and don't do that. There's no instructions. There's no practical advice offered to us so, so that, so that we, we can conquer. Nothing really about, uh, no instructions for us, so we think it's not about us. In fact, the popular view in the American church today is that we get raptured right here, chapter 4, verse 1. So the rest of the revelation really isn't about us. It's just gossip about others. We think it's not about us. And that's really strange. Because according to chapter 1, this part that doesn't seem to be about us is the beginning of the very section that is precisely for us. Chapter 1, verse 11. Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. Maybe it's for us precisely because it isn't about us. And what I mean by that is it's not dependent on us. Maybe it's for us because us, the one who wants to capture the moon, is the problem, not the solution. The voice says, I will show you what must take place, not what should take place. Not what could take place. Not what might take place if only you had the right knowledge and made the right choices. Maybe that's why the part we do understand or think we understand, the direction to the angels, is not for us. And the part we don't understand, the crazy vision, is. It is exactly what the doctor ordered. You know, I used to teach Revelation to this point, chapter 4, verse 1, when I was a youth pastor, we'd do the letter to the seven churches, and I'd stop and I'd say, I'm sorry, but uh, after this, <laughs> I just don't understand. Can't tell you the number of people that said to me, gosh, I've always kind of been interested in the Revelation, but I haven't understood it because, I haven't read it because I, 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 just, I just don't understand. We think it's so important to understand. Guys, if you thought you had to understand a woman, you would never marry that woman. <laughs> if you thought you had to understand a woman before you married a woman, you would never marry that woman and you'd be single the rest of, of, of your life. I, I think I understand more of the Revelation now than I used to, but I'm still just beginning to understand that well, one of the things I'm beginning to understand is that I'm not supposed to understand everything. And maybe if I did understand everything, well, I'd be smart as God, and then God wouldn't be much of a God, and he sure wouldn't be holy, and I'd be like forever disappointed. At the start of the Revelation, I reminded you that there are different ways of knowing and different things that can be known. I once read about... Uh, a young woman explaining to a search engine to her elderly mother. They sat at the new computer, and, and the daughter said, Mom, this is amazing. It can answer any question that you ask. And Mom was rather skeptical about that. So the daughter said, No, no, seriously, Mom, think of any question. We'll ask it, and you'll see. And so her mom was quiet for a moment, and then she said, Okay, here's the question. How is Aunt Helen feeling? <laughs> See, there are different ways of knowing, and there are different things that can be known. There is one way to know objects, and there's another way to know persons. There's one way to know facts, and there's another way to know Aunt Helen. Maybe God is more like Aunt Helen. 
and less like your computer. You can conquer, capture, and comprehend things less than you. You can measure things less than you, but not greater than you. So, if you believe that man is the measure of all things, then you must believe that all things are less than you and can be comprehended by you. You must believe that you're the king of all things, and yet all things in your kingdom must be very disappointing and dead and unreasonable, and you must be utterly alone. I've heard that if a tribal African wants to know something, he dances with it. If a modern American wants to know something, he captures it, cuts it into constituent parts, little pieces, and analyzes each piece. So to know the Bible, you cut it up and turn it into principles and values and practical application points and laws that you can use in order to make yourself good. To know the revelation, you turn it into some sort of calendar to save your life and not lose your life in the great tribulation. To know the Word of God, you, you go to seminary and you master divinity and get a master of divinity degree like me. To know a frog, you capture it, kill it, cut it into little pieces. To know a tree, you cut it down and count the rings. To know a wife or a husband, a, a helper, well, you could capture him, kill him, reduce him to his constituent parts, but but then you couldn't dance with him. He'd be dead. Just body broken and bloodshed. You might know about him, but you could no longer know him or be known by him. I wonder if in our lust to comprehend God, we might somehow murder God. I wonder if in our pursuit of reason, we might become totally unreasonable. I wonder if in our desire to be good, we might crucify the good. I wonder if in our lust to know the word, we might actually nail the word to a, to a tree in a garden. According to John in his gospel, 1941, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. I think John is suggesting that the cross was the tree of knowledge. In the Greek translations, the Septuagint, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it's called the skulon, which can refer to cross or, or tree, the skulon of gnosken, that is knowing, from gnosis, that is knowledge. See, maybe it's not just the Greeks and the Jews, but every sinner that is a Gnostic. Wasn't that the sin in the garden? wanting the knowledge of God more than we wanted to be known and to know God. We wanted the conquest of God more than communion with God, just like the pirate that tried to capture the moon. If Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 is like our first step back into the garden after leaving it in Genesis chapter 3, Maybe we better be prepared to drop the fruit of the knowledge of good in order to know the one that is good. And make no mistake, knowledge is, is good, but the way we take it may be the very definition of, of, of evil. So, 
Maybe we should give up having to understand in order to know. Maybe God doesn't want to be understood so much as known. Like my wife. And like I want to be known by my wife, the bride. Well, like I said in September, I reminded you that, you know, there are a couple ways of knowing. There's an epistemology of technology, which is how we know things less than ourselves, and there's an epistemology of worship. Maybe your chief need is to stop worrying about your needs. Maybe your problem is yourself, (laughs) and yourself can't be fixed with more of yourself. Maybe you need to forget yourself in something greater than yourself so you might find yourself dancing. Maybe you can only conquer by being conquered by God. I used to subscribe to this series of preaching tapes from Christianity Today because this is really stressful preaching and everything. I needed, I, I want all the help I, I can get. But on one of the tapes, I remember the host said something like this. And he said exactly this because I wrote it down. He, he, he said this. The sermon you are about to hear is so good because the preacher leaves the listener with many practical things to do. He doesn't just leave you with the sense that God is great. Oh, I've thought about that statement a lot. (laughs) And I need to say that I think a sense that God is great is pretty much everything that I want to leave you with and and nothing else. From here on out, I think John is just going to leave us self-conscious, self-absorbed, needy, sinful, frightened, confused, Gnostic, modern believers with this overwhelming sense that God is great in every possible way. When you see him, you will worship. And that, my friends, is everything that you need. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Not should, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns, Upon their heads, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven lampos in Greek, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, uh, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you O lord and god 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So John is like outcarnated rather than incarnated. In spirit, through the open door, he sees a throne. And he sees something like the precious stones from the Garden of Eden. He sees a rainbow, the sign of the covenant given to Noah. He sees seven lampos that would be placed on lampstands, like those in the temple, and like, like those that are the seven churches, according to Jesus. He sees the sea of glass before the throne, like the molten sea in the temple before the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne upon earth. He sees the cherubim, like those that guarded the way to the tree of life and guarded the way to the throne of God, as if God's throne were a tree, like a tree of knowledge that gets transformed into a tree of life, uh, like the cross. He sees what Isaiah saw when he was called uh, in the book of Isaiah, what Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 at the Kabar Canal. He sees what has always been and will always be. He, he sees them praising the Holy One who was and is and is to come. He sees behind the veil in the temple. He sees back into the garden in the beginning. He sees reality. He sees the throne. And someone's seated on the throne. He sees. Which is amazing, for it's, it's John that, that wrote this in John 1, verse 8. No one has ever seen God. <laughs> so what is John seeing? No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. In five more verses, John will see a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. And around the throne, John sees 24 presbyteros. That's where we get our word Presbyterian. He sees 24 Presbyterians. <laughs> but not just regular Presbyterian. The word gets translated elders. They're elders like the elders of Israel. They're sitting on 24 thrones. Remember Jesus told his disciples that they'd sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The elders have white garments. In the Revelation, you get a white garment by washing it in the blood of the Lamb. Folks debate the identity of the 24 elders, but I can't avoid the conclusion that they are at least the 12 elders of the tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In chapter 21, the 12 apostles formed the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem, and the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes, formed the 12 gates. The 24 elders are the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 disciples of Jesus, and check this out. Every one of them is a pirate, or at least was a pirate. Think about it. Eleven of them had actually sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. One of these guys is named Judah. He actually impregnated his daughter-in-law, whom he mistook for a pagan cult prostitute, as if that makes it okay, uh, then planned to kill her until she revealed that she was pregnant with Judah's child, who happened to be the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Twelve of these guys abandoned Jesus the night that he needed the most. So this is not the 24 Bible scholars. This is not the 24 super Zen masters. These are the 24 fishermen, shepherds, tax collectors, and sinners. And one of these guys might well just be named Judas. 
One of these guys is certainly named Peter. And one of these guys is named John. So check this out. John sees himself, Ephesians 2, 6, seated with God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He sees 24 pirates. But something is radically different about each one of them. You know, pirates are all about taking life for themselves. They're all about taking life and knowledge and whatever they judge to be good. Pirates are all about taking glory and honor and power. Pirates are all about crowning themselves. But the 24 continually cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Our Lord and God, for you created all things and by your will they were created. If God created all things, then we are worthy of no thing. Unless it's God's will to give us those things. But then we wouldn't be proud of anything. Well, we'd be grateful for everything. And we might just start dancing. God creates all things, and with his will, they are created. His will is his word, and his word is Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness, and we are the pirate who tried to capture the moon. You cannot understand everything in Revelation chapter 4. But if you don't yet understand the point of this sermon, well, let's just listen to the rest of the pirate who tried to capture the moon. And the pirate sailed that bursting ship back to his island, and he waited. Clouds moved across the sky. The wind blew the empty sea. And finally, the moon rose. But when it looked down, it saw that everything it loved was gone. So it moved down to look a little closer, and the fierce pirate sitting on his island laughed. The moon looked again, but still it saw no curtains. It saw no small hills. So again, it came a little closer. The pirate laughed a glen, and he stood up to sharpen his sword. And the moon looked and saw nothing, and still came closer. It looked and looked through streets and in villages and down empty wells. There were no pools of water. There were no poets, no lonely dancers. So it came closer still. And the pirate, seeing the moon come lower, yelled out, Moon, I have captured every ship and everything you love, and now I will capture you. Then he threw open the hatch, and the moon saw everything it loved streaming out of the pirate ship and onto the pirate's island. Kitchen curtains, long candles, violins playing sad music, moody poets and lonely wolves, dancers who danced in the middle of the night. It gave a little sigh and came closer to the island. And the pirate watched. Still, the moon drew closer, and the pirate saw it grow. I didn't know the moon was quite so big, he thought. And still the moon came down. The moon came down closer, still closer, and the pirate started to feel afraid. He tore through the book that told all about the moon, but he couldn't find a place that told how big the moon was. And the moon came down, growing larger and larger, 
larger than the pirate ship, larger than his island, larger than anything the pirate had ever seen. The pirate trembled, and he thought, if I return everything I've captured, that will surely stop the moon. So he cut the saddles and the bit from the wild horses and the chain from the flowers, and they drifted out to sea, and a shadow passed across the giant moon. It was the birds streaming away, and still the moon came down. So the pirate freed the madly playing violins and the howling wolves, the poets chanting and the pools bursting from their barrels, and he sent them sailing home. Moonlight spread over the waves. It covered his empty island. The pirate lifted his trembling sword as the whole sky became the moon. And then the moon stopped and waited. The pirate stared into its light, and a wild shiver ran through him like a wave. He forgot about being afraid. He forgot about being fierce. He lowered his sword. He dropped his armor, and he whispered, Moon, wonderful moon, it is you who have captured me. And the moon glowed through him and above him. Then slowly it started back into the sky, growing smaller, growing distance, until once again it sailed as it pleased. It drifted over the sea and over the island where now there was someone new the moon loved, who loved the moon. For at that moment, in the middle of the night, the pirate began to dance. Any good deed that you do that is not a part of that dance is not a good deed. It's sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, writes Paul. Faith is trusting God's great love for you, and it looks like worship. You see, worship is the old pirate's dance. To dance, you must lose yourself and find yourself dancing. If you make yourself dance, concentrating on every dance step, you're, you're not really dancing. And if you must make yourself worship, you're not really worshiping. If you say, wow, I'm really a great worshiper because I know a whole lot about worship and I work really hard at, at worshiping, you're not worshiping God. What are you worshiping? You, a pirate trying to capture the moon. You can't make yourself worship in spirit and in truth, but you can be reminded to look at the moon. That's what they needed in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They needed a vision of the moon, the throne. Psalm 89, the throne of the seed of David is like the moon. They, they needed to look to the throne and see what John saw. They needed a revelation of Jesus. And that's why we come here each week, <laughs> I hope. I mean, that's what we try to do in, in each worship service. You, you know, whenever you thank God in the name of Jesus for something, that is exactly uh, what you're doing, giving thanks in Jesus' name. You're looking to the throne. That's why we sing. That's why we study. That's why we meet. That's why we do acts of kindness. We're hoping to get a glimpse of the throne so that all of our dance steps might one day part, become part of, of the pirate's the old pirate's dance. The pirate who tried to capture the moon 
and was captured by the moon. Perhaps God creates pirates who try to capture the moon so that the moon can capture those pirates, so that those pirates might dance forever in the light of his love. John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, said Jesus, and he was speaking of his death, notes John, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Dancing in the moonlight, everybody feeling warm and bright. It's such a fine and natural sight. Everybody was dancing in the... Well, you get the idea. But now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, Peter, that's kind of a nice metaphor, but the moon cannot actually come down, did not actually come down, and to capture the moon is completely unreasonable. Well, according to Scripture, the moon is the faithful witness. And the faithful witness is Jesus. Revelation 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The blood moon. According to Scripture, on the sixth day of the week, sixth hour of the day, what I believe was on the sixth day of creation, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became like sackcloth, for Jesus, the faithful witness, had been nailed to a tree in a garden by us. He cried, Father, forgive them, and at 3 p.m. he died. A Roman centurion dropped to his knees and began to worship. What was he? He was a pirate that was loved by the moon, who now loved the moon. Fifty days later, Peter stood up on Pentecost and said, These men are not drunk as you suppose. They weren't drunk, but they, they were moonstruck. They're not drunk. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and I will show signs in the heavens. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Peter talked as if those that were listening to him had already seen these things. Many scholars date the crucifixion to the Friday before Passover, April 3rd, 33 AD. And now due to modern astronomy, I alluded to this on Christmas Eve, due to modern astronomy and computers, we know that around 3 p.m. on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., the moon went into full eclipse below the horizon of the Judean desert, and it rose blood red the evening of April 3rd as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took, took the body of Jesus, the light of the world, and placed it in a tomb. That's art. Now, I don't know if the astronomers and the computers got all the details right, but, but I do know this, that we pirates captured the moon. We captured the moon because the moon had always planned to be captured by us in order that we might be captured by him, the moon, that we might be captured by love and dance in his light forever. In other words, you can only conquer by being conquered by love. You can only truly know because you've been known by Jesus. And so what's my point? Look to the throne. It's where you'll find the Lamb. On the night that he was betrayed, 
he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. For 1,500 years, the Jews have been learning the life is in the blood. So, listen closely. We took the life, but he forgave the life, which is himself. You can't take the life like a pirate if you know that you've already been given the life like a son. And one last thing about Revelation chapter 4. I don't know if this occurred to you, but it raises this fascinating question. The 24 elders, they cast their crowns whenever the cherubim say, holy, 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 and the cherubim never cease saying, holy, 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 which means the 24 elders never cease casting their crowns before the throne, which raises this obvious question, who puts the crowns back on the 24 elders? Did you think of that? Psalm 103, verse 4, we read it at the start of the service. The Lord forgives all your iniquity. John, Peter, Judas, Judah, Israel, children of Adam. The Lord forgives all your iniquity and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. They cast their crowns and the Lord must crown them again and again and, and, and again. So, so it must look like a dance. And you see, it is a dance. It's the old pirate's dance. And it's holy. Why is it holy? It's holy because it moves in the exact opposite direction of your ego and this entire fallen world. They continually cast their crowns and the Lord continually crowns them. So, so the Lord says something like this, John, I crown you with steadfast love and mercy. And John, he looks at Jesus and, and he says, oh, but Jesus, you are worthy of all glory and honor and power. And then he casts his crown before Jesus. And then Jesus says, oh, John, I love you. And John says, I love you, Jesus. And Jesus says, John, you're awesome. And John says, oh, you're awesomer, Jesus. And Jesus says, I love you, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you. And you see all this steadfast love, it never ceases. And so it must be like a continuous river, a, a river of life. And you see, it is. That river of life is the river that flows from the throne through all of creation and returns to the throne as praise. And that dance is the body of Christ rising from the grave even now, even here. And so come to the throne and cast your crown before him. Let's pray. So Jesus, uh, I just, it's just, it's, what's liberating just to say this to you? <laughs> you know all week I've been trying to crown myself. God, we confess to you that we're like constantly trying to crown ourselves. We're just worried about crowning ourselves all, all the time. And so right now we come to your throne and we say that you are worthy.
of all glory, honor, and power. Amen. Oh, Lord God, thank you for opening the eyes of our heart just a little more and allowing us to see you. And then we can't help but adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God, and I will adore you. We just sang that. that first, remember the holy, holy, the holy, holy, holy hymn? There's this line that says, all the saints adore you. You know what the word saint means? Anybody? 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 Class? Class? Anybody? Anybody? It means, yeah, it means Lynn, but not just Lynn. Um, but holy, uh, a saint means a holy one. So it's from sanctus in Latin or something. So we say holy, 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 and then somehow we're called holy ones or or saints. It says, um, uh, holy, holy, all the saints adore you. And you see, that's what it takes to be a saint, to adore him. That's what it is, to adore him. But this is the rub. You can't just decide to adore him. Dang, I, God dang it, I'm going to adore him. That, that's not adoration. Adoration is something that happens to you when you see him. So I'm just reminding you, saints, to keep looking at the throne, and he will transform you, just like the moon is transformed by the sun. Uh, you reflect the glory of the light of the, of the sun, and you become a saint. So in the name of Jesus, saints of the living God, believe the gospel. Amen.